Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph and GP of Flex Capital. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Matt Kaminsky. Matt is the editor-in-chief of Politico. He was the founding editor of Politico Europe, and prior to that, he worked at the Wall Street Journal, where he won an overseas press club prize for coverage in the Ukraine crisis in 2015. Matt, welcome to World of DAS. Oren, it's great to be here. Excited. Now, like pretty much all institutions, trust in journalism is at an all-time low. What do you think is the underlying cause of that? I think it's pretty similar. I think in the media, one of the first industries, I would say, that was disrupted by the rise of the internet in the late 1990s. And I think we're also one of the first institutions to really feel the deinstitutionalization of our culture and our politics and society. I find it paradoxical in a sense, since I think journalism as such has never been better. And especially at the national and international level, I mean, I think, you know, sort of the dot-com revolution really blew up local media, and that's a great tragedy. But for national publications, for more specialized publications, a lot of them are thriving, and there's a lot of amazing work being done. I just assume the distrust is similar to the distrust in government institutions, in the sense that at least my generation, which is the same as your generation, was raised to believe in... uh, I'm too young for Walter Cronkite, but I definitely had Tom Brokaw and Peter Jennings in my life growing up. Uh, We got several newspapers at home, and that was the truth. And with the proliferation of everything, there is no institution that can come close to playing the same role. But I think it's overstated as well. Do you think there's any blame to be put on the media itself for some of this lack of trust? Well, I would say, first of all, I think it's overstated. It's a little bit like people don't like Congress, but actually like their congressmen. What I what I hear a lot is, we don't like media writ large, but I love MSNBC, Fox News, depending on sort of where you live, or I love the Wall Street Journal, but everything else is. I think people are still trusting the sources that, that they choose to trust. Is there a blame on the media? Of course. I mean, I think if we're being introspective, I do think that we've fallen prey to, we become part of the problem in the polarization in this country, as opposed to what I at least was raised to see journalism as, not always the purely objective arbiter of what's really going in the world, but being very careful to make sure that we try and rise above it. And you know, another problem is everyone's a journalist these days. Here we are on this podcast. Right, good point. You started, everyone can publish on, and reach potentially millions of people. So I think people are in some ways right to distrust what they see out there and will be increasingly so as technology takes the leaps and bounds that it does. Do you think trust can like, is it just fated to be low trust in journalism for a very long time? Or do you think there's something that can happen where the trust in the press can rise again? Being at Politico, I sort of see myself and look at the world of politics and see a lot of similarities. There's, as you mentioned, you know, you don't like the institutions of Congress or even the White House, but you like individual parties and certainly individual people. I think with the media, people do trust the sources that they rely on. I think also like with politicians, there are probably moments of great national crisis, God forbid, a war, where people really do come to media. During the COVID pandemic, we all saw record readership. People were turning to us to understand what was going on since people were just so hungry for information. And then a lot of disinformation went out into the world, and, and then they sort of, the pox in all houses, it's the media's fault. But I, I think that's a little bit of a simplistic reading. I think people do, first of all, audiences are smart. People know they can tell quality from garbage most of the time. And at least in my profession, people who are committed to doing this professionally and who are have a standard are doing very well, both as a business and in terms of the having the confidence and the faith of their audiences. You know, we, we do have millions of people who turn to Politico every month, every day to really understand what's going on in American politics. Getting a story right is really hard. Of the complex stories that I've had inside knowledge of, there's never been one that is even remotely accurate. <laughs> I mean, it's really, it must be just really, really hard to actually get a real story out and stuff like that. And usually there, at least I found that the ones that I'm familiar with are riddled with errors. There's lots of things that are factually incorrect. Often like they completely miss the story because somebody's trying to misdirect them in some sort of way or try to get their own thing, their own point across and stuff like that. It must be just so frustrating and difficult to be a reporter. How do you guard against that? 
it's also frustrating to read about yourself. I've been in, in the same position that you have been, Oren, and you're like, oh, I cannot believe they got that thing wrong or it's distorted. But <laughs> complaining about the media is <laughs> one of our oldest, <laughs> you know, habits. Look, there's also a lot of bad journalism out there. And this is where you're talking about, you know, media self-criticism. I do sort of think that as in any industry, there's good and bad. You have bad cars and good cars, and, and there are bad journalists and good journalists. There's a lot of lazy journalism, which is not even quite the same as sort of bad journalism. It's, it's just the reporters who don't do their work. I think it is on us, especially us who are in positions in later generations, who are in positions of power in media, to make sure that the values that we were taught and that the habits that were ingrained in us are passed on. And this is where I do see something that does worry me. I, again, I came into the profession about almost 30 years ago and coming into the profession then, and this was a world still pretty much pre-internet, several national newspapers, several television channels, that the journalism had evolved so much. And remember, journalism used to be a profession where you barely needed a high school degree. Actually, you, you don't need any really degree to be a great journalist now in any case, but it was really professionalized, hit a peak with Watergate. And I think there were generation after generation really learned how to do this properly. With the rise of the internet, the disruption to local media, the places where you were taught how to do proper reporting are fewer than there used to be. And it's a lot easier to become famous and to make a name for yourself in journalism than in the past because you get one thing out there, you've got an amazing Twitter following. So I think our standards may have weakened over in this new era that we live in, which is obviously the, the digital era. It does seem like most media, especially media that covers politics like Politico, most media is has a very clear partisan bent. There's a clear place where they're trying to focus on the political spectrum. Politico does seem to be an exception to that. Is that like a conscious choice where you're consciously saying, okay, we don't want to be a center left or this or that or this other thing? Or is it just kind of evolved that way? It was a very conscious choice from the beginning. I think we were saying, if we're going to be the ESPN of politics, you can't be a fan for one team or the other team because you've yep. got to alienate all the other fans. Oh, that's a good analogy, right? It's not like ESPN is rooting for the Yankees and against the Red Sox or something, right? Right, because then, then you lose half your audience. You never lose. Yep. I mean, the Boston Globe will root for the Red Sox, and that's kind of true to what their audience is. You know, the other reason why we think nonpartisanship is so important is that it enables us to do the kind of journalism that we can do better. So if reporters get need to have access to Marjorie Taylor Greene one day and AOC another day, and if either side can say, ah, I'm not going to talk to you because we think you're in the tank for the other team. And by the way, they, they still say that because this has also become a kind of form of politics in this country to just kind of dismiss uh, critics as being partisan hacks. But for us, it's really important to make sure that we get access to the people that we need to get access to. Part of this is new and part of this has always been here. I actually do not think the best reporters are motivated by an ideological agenda. I'll tell you why. This is a pretty competitive profession. To really win, to really be successful in this profession, you got to be seen as the one who gets the story. And you win by getting the story. You, you don't win by... We all have a political point of view. And it's pretty boring. I mean, I, I used to work for opinion pages for many years. I used to write opinion columns. And I think there's a great place for opinion journalism. And people really enjoy opinion journalism. When opinion journalism starts to get into news journalism, I think it actually just deadens the product. There's other things besides kind of out-and-out -out partisan bias. There's kind of a worldview bias. The New York Times has always had a certain worldview based on where it is, what kind of people it tends to hire. I do think they have amazing journalists there and they do an amazing job, but they reflect a certain sensibility, which is, in lack of a better phrase, an Upper West Side New York sensibility. The Wall Street Journal, which is based in New York too, actually has always had more of a Midwestern sensibility, especially in the news report. We stick to the facts. We tell people what's going on straight. People are making decisions about their stock portfolios based on what they read here. So I think that's always been the case. I think what has made it sharper is as the business model has moved from being primarily reliant on print advertising to primarily reliant on subscriptions, digital subscriptions, which is actually very healthy because it means people who are consuming the product are actually paying for it. The danger there is that you become captive to the audience that you have and you might 
think that you would lose your business if you suddenly really kind of changed your editorial approach. I mean, this is actually where editors play a very important role to make sure that you don't lose that because I still think the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal should be places, and Politico for that matter, should, should be places where people are reading the news and believing that what they're reading is on the up. Though it does seem that since the New York Times made that shift to subscriptions, you can almost point to that day at a point where they've always been known as being a little bit on the left. But once they made that shift, you could see it move more significantly to the left. Or would you not agree with that? I don't disagree. It's also coincided with a kind of cultural change in the country and in the newsroom. That's right. So you have a new generation of journalists coming into the newsroom. Those journalists have a different background than the previous generation had, where we're also trained differently. In my generation, to get a job at the New York Times, you probably needed to get a job first at the Charlotte Observer, if you were lucky, and learn how to do your craft covering the police beat. And then maybe five, eight years later, you're lucky enough to get the New York Times. Now you come out of it a bit more directly or from different places. The other thing which has changed in newsrooms is that we have all kinds of jobs that we didn't have before. We have great audio teams, we have great interactives teams, we have engineers that are on my staff who are coders. So there are people who come in with a a different route into journalism than we had in the past. I think that's mostly a good thing, but it, it does, I think, make it harder to really make sure that you have sort of really the idea that journalism is supposed to be nonpartisan. I think all journalists are not nonpartisan. We're not supposed to be pushing a party agenda, We're supposed to be pushing an agenda. We will tell you something you did not previously know, and we will tell you in an engaging, interesting way. Politicians seem, at least from my perspective, to be 95% performance, 5% substance. I imagine the performance is the one that really drives clicks and views. How do you think about that when you're trying to figure out how to what to cover? Again, we talked about earlier the kind of the parallels between the political world and the media world. And again, it's clearly, I think it actually speaks to all media, but it's something that we see all the time. The one change in politics, and you hear it a lot from, I was talking to a CEO somewhere and who's been doing this for a while, and he was up on Capitol Hill, and he was saying how 25 years ago, to make your career on the Hill, the best way for a congressman or a senator is to really be a master of the policy subject areas. Yeah, you needed to kind of be a good retail politician, obviously, but the way to succeed was you push legislation that mattered, that unlocked donors that you needed to come in to sort of support your reelection bid. Expertise was highly valued in both elected office and in the support staff. And I think you've kind of seen a slight dumbing down of our politics, and maybe it's come with the dumbing down of our media and everything else, because the way to succeed now is to make a show of it. Trump is more brilliant at it, I think, than, than most people, but I think Obama benefited from it as well. He was highly charismatic. He raised a lot of money from small donors. He did not need the kind of the guys with the big checks to, to get him to the White House. And it happens everywhere throughout. There's still plenty of people, you can point to people on the left and the right today who are very substantive, maybe someone like a Mike Gallagher on the right or somebody is a fairly substantive politician. It's not everybody is a is performative or do you disagree like it? It's just tilted so much to that. Mike Gallagher is a good example, but walk down the street and ask 10 people, do you know who Mike Gallagher is? Do you know who Matt Gates is? Right, nobody, nobody will know who he is. Do you know who AOC is, right? Right. Yeah, they know the more performative people. Of course. Those are the people with all the Twitter followers, yeah. And there's the people who are getting the donations coming in. They're the ones who are getting the, the media coverage. And also the donations is important because now you can get all these, you can go direct to people, you can get these small dollar donations before those donations are coming in from a handful of elites. And so they probably really do want to deal with the people on the policy side. Whereas if you can go around those elites, it's probably you become much more powerful because then you have pots of money that you can divvy out. Yeah, it's almost actually more democratic. This is kind of a, a good thing. But the idea that Matt Gates, who I don't think has a legislative win to his name, although I have not looked very closely, and is now seriously talking about running for the governor of Florida. I don't even know. Maybe someone on the Florida delegation who has a better record in Congress who wouldn't even be part of that conversation. How we cover it is a... <laughs> We're an audience business. We we have to produce work that people read and we care about how many people read it. 
And like everyone else, our eyes are drawn to what's interesting. Trump is interesting. Marjorie Taylor Greene is interesting. AOC is interesting. Joe Biden's not that interesting as a kind of media personality, and yet he's president. So, you know, I, I don't want to sort of, I don't think we live fully in the realm of just pure spectacle in Washington and nothing substantive is happening here. I think our politics has become much more of a spectacle. And the media has helped that. By media, I would say journalists plus just the institution of the internet and the fact that people are, are sort of consuming this everywhere and everyone is covering it, whether with video or with properly written stories. So speaking of big stories, you were on the inside of breaking the biggest story of 2022, which was the leak in the Dobbs case that upended Roe v. Wade. Right. What was it like being on the inside of that? And um, <laughs> I imagine it was super stressful. I mean, you don't expect that to happen in a career all that often. When I first got the call from one of the editors saying, oh, we may have this, should we pursue it? And I said, I like, oh, that's highly unusual. I doubt, well, this will go anywhere, but sure, why not? You know, but you had never even heard of something similar ever happening before. This is a moment we've been talking with you a lot about the spectacle of our politics and of the journalism and the decline in trust in media. But that was one of these moments where all the people on my team who worked very closely on this story actually felt the great responsibility we had in handling this. Several things that we were trying to figure out. The most important thing is, is this thing real? Yeah, authenticating this leak, right? That it actually was. And how do you go about doing that? Because you start to call a bunch of people, they're just not going to want to talk to you. I'm probably not going to give you a yes or a no, right? Right. But I think we knew that if we had put out something that was, first of all, if it was wrong, it would be terrible for, well, starting with me, but it'd be terrible for Politico. But actually, I think it'd be terrible for the country as well, because it would still kind of create the firestorm that it did and then the fallout from it. So I mean, we were very careful about getting, making sure that it's right. And then you look very hard at the source and try and understand why, who, how, get that firmed up. And do you try to understand their motivation as well? I think that's something that we always try and understand with sources, partly to sort of judge whether the information we've given is, is accurate and to also to be aware ourselves of sort of why they are coming forward with the information. Ultimately, that's not the determinative thing for us. I mean, it, it's news. I think we felt that if we didn't, we couldn't undo the fact that we knew this and we have an obligation to our readers to to share things that we know. But we also know this would have gotten out somehow if, if we didn't put it out there and we felt that we could do it, which was really the second thing that we wanted to do is to put it out there in a way that was very clean, sort of clear and, and dispassionate, that sort of no one could accuse us of saying that there were all these theories about it. Like this is someone in right-wing jurist's office who's trying to lock in that outcome. This is someone from the left who's outraged by it and is trying to sort of undermine faith in the Supreme Court. So we worked very, very carefully to the way we presented the story. And if you read it, it's very, this is what we know. You have to protect your source, essentially. That's also sacred, you know? And, yeah. and I think we're very glad that we've uh, su succeeded in doing that. And we have done everything possible to make sure that we continue to, to do that. The Supreme Court did do an investigation, which they closed in January, saying they could not identify this this person. Do you think like 20 years from now, we'll all know who this person is? Or do you think it might go to this person's grave and your grave? I mean, we are certainly not going to, they can do whatever they want, but we made the commitment that we made. It was one of the more unusual and one of the most thorough, as you can imagine, vetting experience. Leaking a Supreme Court opinion is unprecedented. You've had leaks a couple times, including of Roe v. Wade, where someone was told a day before that the court was going to go this way. But this is the first time you have a draft opinion. Many months ahead of time. Many months ahead of time, where the fact of us publishing, and this is, was weighing on me a lot at the time, was the fact of us publishing this, the fact of us sort of revealing this, could potentially change the outcome that was going to happen if we had not divulged this. We also were very aware that is it in the public interest to know? I think we, again, decided that it is because we do know it. It is out there and we have it and other people could. And then Wade very much, you know, that this is news that will change public perceptions of the court. 
arguably would weaken the court, which is one of our three branches of government, yep. and sort of upend the, the campaign, which it did in 2022. And this is, again, where we always come back to first principles. And, and I think as talking about journalism, at least here, I always say, look, it's a very complicated world. It's a very fast changing world. We're not technologists. We're not ethicists. We're not seers. We have to be a little bit of all those things. But fundamentally, let's go back to the things that we were taught. We put out information that we have acquired in the process of doing reporting. We try and present it in ways that are clear, in a way that the audience accepts as being credible and doesn't think there's one side is pushing or the other side is pushing. To your point about biased journalism, I do think news journalism has to be beyond reproach. I mean, I'm, I think I'm old-fashioned enough to believe that a reader should not know your party card, assuming you kind of carry one, in reading your reporting. If they can tell where you yourself fall politically, that just diminishes the story by 50%. But I mean, then it is somewhat of an indictment of journalism because outside of Politico, maybe a few other publications, you can't really say that about most publications and most journalists. I agree with you on maybe if you're talking about publications as such. If you look at certain publications, the kinds of stories they choose to promote on front pages, where they sort of put the emphasis, the tone of headlines. That comes from the editing ranks and from the very top. I do think that most reporters, and I hope this continues to be the case, are driven by that old-fashioned competitive instinct to get the story, get the story first, and be smart. That's the ideal, obviously. (laughs) And I think in practice, you see it more often than people realize. And you don't see it as often as we should. I do think there are certain politicians that have gotten an easier ride from journalists. But I'm not sure, to be honest, whether it's it's because the journalist is biased. But, you know, p- people love John McCain. Let's just take an example from our past. Reporters love John McCain. John McCain got great coverage because John McCain knew how to talk to journalists. I like John McCain. He was a fun person to talk to, and therefore he got great coverage. I mean, in 2000, the Gore campaign thought the press was biased against them because the press people just didn't like Gore, and they happened to Bush joked around with them, and they liked Bush, right? Yeah, of course. So it was it was like a personal thing, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, this is a human business, and, and sort of human faults come into it, but this is where... I do think there's an importance, you know, that institutional values come into play here, that we have to make it clear to journalists what we expect from them. And we spend a lot of time on that. There's a lot of time spent on internal training. We do vet stories very closely. Are we perfect? No. Are others perfect? Certainly not. But I do think that there is still a tradition in American journalism that you're trying to be fair. And it's more of something you would associate, I think, with print journalism than with other media. Have you ever seen the documentary Journeys with George by Alexandra Pelosi? I have not. This is a documentary by, I believe, the daughter of Nancy Pelosi, who's obviously not a Republican. It's about the George W. Bush campaign of 2000. And it's like super favorable to George Bush. Really? And I think she just like kind of fell for him. (laughs) He's a personable guy and she just enjoyed hanging out with him. She was on the plane covering him and it was it's a very, very favorable uh, thing. Yeah, but I think, you know, I do think sort of readers and serious readers, serious viewers, like we're not trying to kind of attain a perfect standard of objectivity. I would think what we're always looking for more in journalism is authority, that you trust the person that either you're watching or reading, that they've done the work, they've properly thought it through, they're honest with you about what they know. They could be even honest about their biases. It's a lot of great magazine reporting, which is not written in that voice of that godlike voice of the New York Times from 1965. But that you can see, even if, if you think the, the writer takes a certain position, they are sharing you enough information and are letting you make up your mind for, your, for yourself. That's what I would actually most wish for, that people are finding the work engaging and interesting and credible and not sort of ideologically perfect, for us, it actually is very important to make sure that we're hitting both sides equally or being fair with both sides equally. Obviously, consume a lot of journalism from other places. Ultimately, what I want to get from the media is 
you want to be smarter about the world around you and you want to understand something better. And there are many different ways to achieve that. And that's the higher calling. Like the Dobbs story, like, well, many of your best stories come from leaks. How do you think about leakers in general? I mean, it's your job to basically get people to do things that they're not really supposed to do. I think it's part of uh, their their public service is to sort of help us uh, to good journalism. <laughs> Look, I mean, leakers going back eternity are part of uh, life in a democracy. People who work in government will tell you there's many different motivations to share information. And there are some, some of them are actually very noble motivations. You know, they, a lot of leakers don't, first of all, don't see themselves as being leakers. I mean, it's rare that you get a Dobbs-like thing. Here's a document, Edward Snowden, who I think it's, is he a traitor or a hero? You know, that, that, that's more of a political, but, but that's very rare that you just get a dump of here's something that you shouldn't have. What this usually comes out of, and the reason why I think we get a lot of exclusives is because we have a lot of people who build up very close relationships with people in power. And that is the job of a reporter in Washington, or for that matter, any political capital. When you build a relationship, it's not that you have one conversation. I, I had a colleague who used to cover the Pentagon, who over 25 years called the same person in the Pentagon every single day. Most of the time, it's just kind of shoot the, you know, shoot the shit. What's going on? How is Bill Cohen doing? Did you see that, what Clinton did? And sometimes it got to be sort of substantive. And I think if you're in government, I do think it's important to have relationships with the media who cover you because you do want a more perfect form of information to get out. You want to shape the story. You want to shape the story, but you want to say, I mean, you were sort of saying how frustrated reading about yourself by journalists. I would say, well, then, you know, I think you Orange should choose. I trust these three journalists and these are journalists that I'm going to have a relationship with that I'm going to be honest sometimes or just have lunch with them. Or sometimes, you know, you can work a story. There are many, many great journalists and they do work closely with sources to get things right. Journalists who cover the government need the access to understand what's going on. And then for a democracy to function, people have to understand what their damn government's doing. I can think of very few leaks that were sort of actually damaging. Ultimately, things that get out should probably get out and are in the public interest. And not just because the government overclassifies things as secret, actually shouldn't be secret because taxpayers deserve to know. I, ultimately, that, that's the way that I think about it. Some of your colleagues at other newspapers and news organizations have gotten dinged from sometimes putting unpopular opinions and on the opinion pages and stuff like that. Some of them have even gotten fired because of they've had internal rebellions and stuff. I imagine like just being a newspaper person and actually just trying to stick to, hey, we're going to actually do news. And if a senator or a respected person wants to write an opinion and we think the opinion is interesting, we're going to publish it. I imagine that's actually like much harder to do today than it was 30 years ago. Have you felt some of those like same pressures? I think I may know which case you are referring to. <laughs> what maybe worries me more than the state of journalism itself, which I think is ultimately quite healthy. And if we continue to figure out good business models to support independent journalism, journalism can continue to thrive. But the other thing that you need for journalism to thrive is a healthy respect for free speech on both sides. I do worry about people in newsrooms, people actually, frankly, in general in public life are afraid to have honest conversations about the most important subjects before the country or their community, then it becomes very hard to actually be a successful publisher of, of a publication, but also it becomes very hard to kind of live in a society which is free and has been for well over two centuries. I do think the case you're referring to, obviously, is a Tom Cotton one in um, 2020. That was a unique moment, tense moment in the U.S. and I think in that newsroom. And I would hope that a lot of people who worked in that newsroom would think about it differently. Some people have come out and said they were sorry about what they did at that moment. There were some mea culpas, not from the very top at the New York Times, but, but there were some mea culpas about we really went too far. I don't know how to run a publication without protecting free speech. And having spent a lot of my life, you know, I used to edit an op-ed section for a bunch of years at the Wall Street Journal. There's nothing I enjoyed putting out there more than a controversial opinion. Responsible, fine, interesting, well put together, whether it was from the left or from the right. That's the whole point of an opinion section. It's, it's like a public square. And if you're saying that 
that voice is not allowed and that voice is not allowed, what that leads, it impoverishes the square because the people who are making those decisions start to worry about their careers. And so you have self-censorship. Having been raised in uh, the Eastern Bloc, I don't really want our papers to be turned into Pravda. <laughs> I think above all, because they're really boring. It's actually bad for journalism. You know, people should have to sort of hear other points of view and have fun with ideas. And that particular incident happened peak COVID times. There was a lot of censorship, maybe self-censorship in COVID, people censoring different theories about where COVID came from, censoring other types of things in COVID. In retrospect, some news organizations say hey, they wish they didn't do this or they shouldn't have done that, or they, they gave into a little bit too much pressure from government and stuff like that. Because I imagine in times of crisis, you're much more likely if government's like, hey, don't publish this, it's going to get people all jittery. You're going to be less likely to do those types of things. How do you think as news organizations, we should think of like when to censor, how to censor, et cetera? Well, first of all, that definitely did happen. And only kind of antidote to it, in a sense, is to talk about it openly and reflect. I think some of the great news organizations have pretty strong ombudsmen, have good editors who are responsible for setting and enforcing standards. And because we're not perfect, discussed earlier, you know, this is a human business and we're fairly flawed. And until ChatGPT can not only get its facts straight, but also can go out there and start reporting stuff, like we're <laughs> condemned to having sort of humans <laughs> do this kind of work. I do worry that it's harder to have honest conversations in America as such, and certainly in American newsrooms. So and self-censorship doesn't come from a directive from someone in my position. It, it comes from sort of all sorts of indirect pressures that people may even be misreading. I've had this with reporters of certain politicians. You write a negative story about them, you have three days of uh, hate on Twitter. Do you really want to put yourself through that or would you rather do some other story? I don't think there's a kind of conspiracy to kind of silence things. I think it's mo mostly that, that the culture we live in is now less hospitable to, to a truly honest conversation about what's, what's going on. There's a lot of screaming in this country these days, which I, I, I think uh, is partly the fort of so social media. Everyone's got a megaphone. Speaking of social media, there has been a lot of blame directed at these tech companies for rise of misinformation, for increasing polarization, for division in society. Do you think there are things that these tech companies could do to make things better in society, or do you think they are what they are? Sorry, before I was saying, like, ah, we're not technologists, we should be journalists, we should be best at sort of doing sort of at least extra journalism and being clear about the kind of journalism we do. The tech platforms to me still are ultimately tech platforms, but they're also publishers of a lot, a lot of content. And I know people have debated this for years, and this is where I don't know as much as Kara Swisher mm -hmm. and dozens and dozens of, of other kind of journalists who really kind of grew up in that world. I guess you could say if, you know, if Facebook spent more money on content moderation instead of trying to hook, you know, sort of teenagers on, on certain kinds of content, we might be in a better place but if it wasn't Facebook, it could be someone else. You can only control the world so much. Ultimately, there has to be a response, which starts with having open conversations about this. Politicians come into it, and even though they're very, very, very slow, like everything in American life, we're pretty good at correcting mistakes, and, and there were sort of excesses done by tech companies that politicians should try and address. But I, I'm not sure what the magic solution is. I, I don't know, Orrin. I mean, actually, this is, this is your area. It's, I mean, much more than, than mine. I'm kind of curious what you think should have been done differently. And this is not a cop-out. This is more an, an admission of sort of... Uh... Yeah. I don't know, and I'm not sure that social media is worse than TV news. So it's not clear to me... Though some people say social media drives TV news, it's not clear to me that it, it just could be a reflection of society. Yeah, I mean, the world is, what is the world now? I mean, it's, I think a lot of things like misinformation, disinformation used to be called propaganda. We used to pump radio waves into the Soviet Union to tell them stuff, and they used to sort of try and send it back and leaflet and then spread misinformation going back decades. So a lot of what we're talking about is not new. What is new is the volume level and just the sort of the scale of all this. I think that's what people probably find so disorienting. A world where you needed to be able to afford a printing press and a fleet of trucks and a bunch of kids on bicycles to be a publisher of news. In some ways, it was a much simpler world. And maybe it actually was a better world in terms of having people be able to process what's going on around them. Everything's coming at you. It's like you're on amphetamine or something, which is sort of this sort of deluge of it. But there certainly is no magic fix for that, unless you want to undo the internet and undo the last 25 years. 
there seems to be a rise in the U.S. of preference falsification where people are saying things that they don't actually believe in, both on the left and the right. It seems to be much more prevalent today than it has been in the past. Obviously, people never completely speak their mind. That would be crazy. Everyone self-censors a bit, but it seems to be quite high. And I know that you have experience growing up in a communist country that did a lot of those types of things. Does that make it harder to be a journalism because people are constantly, or they, or at least when they get behind and closed doors, they can actually tell you the truth? Yeah, it makes it certainly more sort of challenging. And I definitely, I think, because politicians, being a politician is now primarily being a kind of media figure to a certain degree, where that was only kind of a small part of it. And even the ones who are the most anti-media, like Ron DeSantis, media is almost everything for, for them. I do think on the other side of it, and, and this is what is, you can kind of depress yourself about the state of journalism, the state of sort of media. But when you look really hard closely at it, a couple of things that I see is in a country where people are incredibly well-educated, want to be well-informed, People are searching for quality sources of information. People do identify either certain journalists or certain figures or certain institutions. They support them with their time or, or with their money. And that was my experience. Again, I was only a kid in the Eastern Bloc, but my grandparents used to listen to Radio Free Europe very quietly in the corner of their house to know what was really happening in their country. You sort of, you actually even more want to know what's going on. I don't think that people are not less well-informed than they used to be. They're probably much better. In, yeah, they're much more informed. They have much easier access to actually credible sources of information, to primary sources of information as well. There are all these studies that the more educated people are, the more they have access to news, the more partisan they become. <laughs> I guess you don't really have time to make up your mind because you're always processing what's <laughs> coming at you. From your standpoint as a journalist, what do you think are the big stories, the big issues that not enough people are talking about today? We are living through an era of a very fundamental change in our economy and in the way we work. That I was, I think, sort of my kids will have a very different professional life than I've had. I guess we don't probably don't talk enough about how to prepare people for this kind of world. To your point, that things are sort of changing so quickly. There is so much coming at us. I think for all the stories about polarization in America and for all the attention that politicians get, frankly, you know, the things you think about, especially as a parent, is. How do you prepare your kids for the world that's coming? Even with so chat GPT, which is now getting so much attention, I never heard of it until about six months ago, or vaguely heard about it. And it's something which has come so quickly and has such far-reaching implications and is probably going to do to our, probably my industry and our economy, what the digital revolution of the late 20th century did at the time. What do you think it is going to do to the industry? I think like other tools in the past, it should make us more efficient, first of all. If we're kind of creative, we should be better at what we do by using it. We start thinking about, you know, can we organize our data? We've got a lot of archives. We deal with a lot of documents. The data journalism, like, should be able to do some of that better. Data journalism, for sure. But even, I think you can imagine some of the more rote functions that now currently someone needs, must do. I would love to have someone who does like SEO. Probably artificial intelligence would be better at search engine optimization than... It's interesting because one of the things that Chat GPT does very well is summarizes things. And if you think if there's been like entire publications like Axios that are literally just like summaries of stuff, it's like, hey, here's a bunch of, here's, you don't have time to read this whole thing. Here's a good summary in like five bullet points. That is something that ChatGPT probably is going to do a really good job of. I think that, I think we want to use it, Google or Spellcheck now. I think it's actually very good at headlines. A friend of mine was sort of playing around with the names for a newsletter. It was about future of work topic. And ChatGPT came up with actually better suggestions for, for, for possible names for it. So it's very, very early on. I mean, like any technology in the past, I still have to believe that it'll, and this is not going to be undisruptive, obviously, but at that kind of lower end of the kind of uh, skill scale, it'll take that part over, but then it would hopefully let people focus on, on where you can add more value. And still, it cannot go out there and do interviews. It, 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 could, it could actually hit the other side. There could be a lot of things on the lower end that are very hard. If you think of AI, it hasn't yet replaced like the waiters and stuff. And uh, you would think that that's where the robots would have come first is replacing the waiters in the restaurants. But like 
it could actually replace the doctor. Yeah. Right. Or it could make it sort of that we have more specialists and some of the sort of general practitioner stuff is handled by AI or having, you know, being able to sort of identify problems much earlier than than you would by talking to the to your GP right now and through both testing. Well testing, obviously. So random question for you. What conspiracy theories do you think are true? Well, I know you have one that I now happen to believe is true. Can I can I share that one? Sure. Do you know what it is? I don't know, but you and I have had many discussions over the years. So, uh, and I love I love hearing conspiracy theories. I'm not even sure if I still believe this one. Okay. But I love repeating conspiracy theories. So this is one actually I do think is true because I kind of convinced myself. It's a bit self serving. So it's your conspiracy. Theory. There's a conspiracy against Gen X. Okay. That we are this sort of generational cohort, which is squeezed in with the smallest one. Yep. We're squeezed in between these entitled, needy boomers who are our parents. And then on the other end, you have that bulge of uh, millennials who are also entitled and needy in their own ways. We're like the middle child, right? We we don't get the, the middle child of generations. We won't get the president, see, most likely. And yet we are carrying the burden of, we are carrying a disproportionate share of the burden in American professional and society as such. And you think there's a good chance that the presidency never hits Gen X, it just like, you know, it almost skipped the, the silent generation, like somehow Biden still slipped in and got the, and, and got like, so that was a generation that almost never got <laughs> McCain and Mondale and many other people who tried, but never got it. Yeah. they finally slipped in with Biden. You could see a scenario where Generation X doesn't get the presidency or they get this 80 year old presidency in, in many years from now. Imagine Ethan Hawke running for president one day. Uh, I think yeah. he would be the perfect uh, representative of, of our generation. Um, he was in Gattaca, right? I mean, that's a perfect uh, <laughs> scenario. <laughs> Do you think that there's a structural thing of, of, is the Generation X, it doesn't seem like it's hit other places. There's been Generation X prime ministers in the UK. There's, gener- there's Generation X president in France. It doesn't seem like it's hit other places, like it's hit the US. You know, I actually think we might get a president. I think there's a conspiracy against us that way, but I think we don't get enough attention, if I may say so, credit. And this is more of a middle-aged man cry, right? Generations X is at a stage in its evolution, so to speak, where it is carrying kind of the weight of the two other generations, and we're small. And we also kind of have no great cultural markers. I don't think reality bites really counts. As, <laughs> and we don't get that, that much attention. Think about how much... Attention is, is given to the boomers and their music and their impact on politics. And then things just kind of passed us over. And suddenly the, the millennials are, are sort of the they're Gen Zers. Maybe they're going to be big enough to take some claim to this territory. But the millennials are also now, because we were also raised in a time of recession. It was just the time after the, the first Gulf War. And the boomers are the ones that kind of benefited from that kind of great prosperity of the sort of 90s and, and so on. And then, uh, and then the millennials kind of, missed that. The millennials came in a time of plenty and 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 sort of act like it. So though in some ways like we had it slightly easier than the millennials in terms of like if you're born in the 70s, in the late 60s, 70s, most like Generation X, you were born with a very low population. So if you were applying to college, it was much easier to get into college yes. than it was for the millennials. At the millennials, it was like twice as many people, maybe even sometimes five times as many people applying to elite colleges. And then you also have people internationally who are applying as well. And then it just seems like just getting some of these like more elite jobs has become more competitive as well. So maybe there's something about the millennials where they've had to be a little scrappier to get ahead. Yeah, they have a sort of high opinion of themselves as a result. I think I heard somewhere that it was that the class of 95 at Harvard, that was the easiest year to get into Harvard. Yep, that's right. Yeah, because they, they, that means they were born on 73, which was basically the lowest birth year as a percentage. Low point. Yeah. I think someone that we both know is sort of joking, well, that explains why I got in. <laughs> this person's probably in line for a Nobel Prize, so I, I think <laughs> probably deserve to get in, but <laughs> it's definitely true. But having kind of kids who are now college bound, the other change you sort of see, and I, I do think that this decline in the trust in institutions has also kind of coincided in the decline in the importance of institutions. Yes, it's harder than ever to get into college. And then I would probably make the argument that it's less important than it was in the past where you go to college. 
Like in the 1950s, Yale had about an 80% acceptance rate. And these kids were mostly kids of alums. There was a quota system for Jews, for public school kids. And getting into Yale in 1950 assured that you had a, probably a 50-year, pretty much great career on Wall Street or a, as a lawyer, whereas that's not true anymore. You know, you can, yeah. you can, you can uh, I think, I think we've sort of seen the deinstitutionalization of, I mean, there's an upside to not having these sort of social, you know, arbiters, the way that media used to be, like, we filter for you what's important. Now people can say, no, I'm going to find out myself the way that higher education institutions used to kind of filter for business. Business now can either find people in, in various ways, or you can just create a great startup and be on your way. That, I think that's a very positive change that has come. Even if it's come at the cost of, you know, declining public trust in our institutions, I actually don't think that's a bad thing. I agree with you that these elite colleges are actually they're actually less valuable really today than they've ever been. But it does seem like parents spend way more time trying to get their kids into them than they've ever have in the past. So they're putting, the parents are putting way more value on these elite institutions than they were 40 years ago. Yet the value of these elite institutions seem to be a lot lower than they were. So why is this happening? Why? Because is- it's a status symbol, right? Well, sure. Yeah. Tell your friends, your kid goes to Stanford. There, there is no bigger flex. Yeah. Is so, that, the, uh, I mean, to me, that's probably the answer is that you're, you're not allowed to brag that you're the editor of Politico or that I have a nice house or, you know, these things, you, you just can't brag about these things anymore, but we're still very much allowed to brag if your kid goes to Harvard. Like that is, in fact, if you meet someone whose kid goes to Harvard, they will tell you within 20 seconds of meeting them, guaranteed that they will tell you. <laughs> I wonder if there's a broader reason for that, for this sort of decline in importance of these institutions. I think they're part of it too, is that the move away from and I'm not a great fan of standardized testing that tell you how good you are at taking the test. At the same time, it made admission to these schools, whether it's law school or undergrad, more competitive and probably more meritocratic. And as that has changed, I've heard employers tell me that then they actually rely less on the Harvard admissions office doing the kind of first pass for them at who should be recruited for for top jobs, you know, top entry-level jobs coming in. And I think that change, which is something not related to what we were talking about, I think that is also changing perceptions of these schools. All right, this has been great. Last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? Hard work is the key to success. I think that's obviously something you hear. And I would never tell my kids, by the way, they should not be working hard in school. I hope they're not listening to this podcast, though. I think they are. Hard work is the success in school. Part of my anti-grit, anti-grind, hard work comes from inspiration or having an amazing idea. And I think in America, we do overly glorify the grind. I think that the grind is both uh, soul-killing, but kind of brain-killing. What's so bad about it? As someone who was a grinder and still is a grinder, <laughs> what's so wrong about it? Yeah, but you're a grinder at things that you're great at, and you're a grinder at things that you love doing, I imagine. I think, you know, so so the inspiration, the kind of the, the love of what you're doing, the sort of taking the time to figure out what you want to do, and then getting it done, that's more important. And, and hard work in and of itself There is no joy in that unless it's connected to an inspired idea or I think some sort of passion. It does seem, at least to me, if I think of all the people I've met in my teens and my 20s, it seems like the people who worked the hardest on this random project at school or worked the hardest in some random thing their first couple of years at work, those were the ones who ended up being the most successful people. Um, it was literally like the raw number of hours that they put in and they and that they they cared about and didn't slack off. At least that's what I've seen, but you disagree. I would say, think about Michael Jordan. I'm sure there were many other players in his generation who spent as much time in the gym or worked as hard as Michael Jordan, and there was only one Michael Jordan. Of course, yeah. And I think that that became because he identified a passion and a, and a drive for something, which in his case was being competitive, w- w- winning, being very regular at sports and at basketball, and then worked super hard as well. Or I bet you could say something else. He had talent. I bet you there are some other people who got to the NBA on the talent, but they didn't become Michael Jordan because they didn't work as hard as him, care as much about it. Yes. So it's very possible there could have been other Michael Jordans 
if you think of the work after Kobe Bryant is famous for his like insane work after LeBron James or something like, you know, these guys just work so hard at their craft. And it's very possible that there could have been other people who are also in the, obviously they were innately talented, but who had some innate talent, but who never achieved the Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant status because they didn't work as hard. Well, I can guarantee that if I worked as hard as Kobe Bryant, I could still not win five NBA championships. That's right. I agree with that. You have to have some sort of innate talent as well. Yes. (laughs) I may have. And I can't say that I think people that either in my profession or around who are successful, I wouldn't say they're purely the kind of the the Conovite Prize. There's a prize for the factory worker who was a hero factory worker who the worker I was. I don't think the kind of Stakhanovites of our world are the ones who are remaking it. Hard work is essential, obviously, but is it the key? I, I would say I would say it's not the key. Hard work should actually very naturally flow from an inspired idea or an innate talent or something that actually we come to in some way that kind of gives you space to to, to identify it. I, I think. You know, I'll give you a small example here in, in our operation. I think we probably spend a little bit too little time just kind of taking a deep breath, thinking about what we're doing, trying to think of how can we do this differently? How can we do it creatively? That we kind of fall in this, I, th- I think the hamster wheel can be both just deadening, but also kind of actually sort of, dis- sort of bad, it can, can actually sort of undermine what you're trying to do, whether it's a creative enterprise or anything kind of more purely commercial enterprise. I think very few white collar workers work 40 hours a week, work even that much. I think some white collar workers need to work 80 hours to get a good 40 hours. So to actually get the 40 hours out there, but there's plenty of people that work 40, but actually produce, you know, they're not really working. So they really only have like 25 or something or 20. If you can get a good 40 out of someone, I think that's amazing, but it's pretty rare to get a good 40 out of out of a particular person. People who probably work the hardest are probably at the lower end of our pay scales. That's right. So those people are working hard. They are working really hard. I've never felt I worked harder than when I did when I worked as a Valley Parker in certain restaurants or in the kitchen of certain restaurants. Yeah, when you're on the clock, when people are paying you by the hour, then they want to get the most out of your hour and they're often working pretty hard. When you're getting paid by the year, then people start to change how they work often. For so many of what we do, that is such an important time to, to, to be able to carve. And it's so hard because there's so much pressure to work hard and there's just so much to do. So many jobs, actually reading a book and sitting on the beach is is part of the job. Or having drinks <laughs> with your source or something. Exactly. <laughs> oh, this has been amazing. Thank you, Matt Kaminsky, for joining us at World of Das. I follow you at KaminskyMK on Twitter. I definitely encourage our listeners to engage with you there and really appreciate you being on with us. Thanks, Oren. This is really great to be with you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider reading this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. World of Das is brought to you by SafeGraph. SafeGraph is geospatial data for physical places. Check it out at safegraph.com and by Flex Capital. Flex Capital invests in data companies like those we talk about at World of Das. Check it out at flexcapital.com.